it never fails whenever you're you're done up here and you say goodbye to everybody and you get in your car and drive away you think you, you start reviewing what all you set up here what you didn't say what you could have said da 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 we call that the power of sin because he just like beats you up about oh you you, you missed this you totally missed that but um I I don't know if you if you heard it or not but last week when Stephen was delivering his message in Acts chapter 7, he went back to the patriarchs of the faith, Jewish faith, and he talked about Moses, and Moses was rejected uh, the first time he came to save the, the Jews from the Egyptians, but the second time he came back, he was received. And then uh, the second thing that Stephen talked about was he talked about Joseph, how he wasn't received by his brothers, but then the second time he was received. And I just didn't say or lead on to say that the next time that that Jesus was rejected, the first time he came, but the second time that he comes, he'll be received uh, by the faith, uh, by those Jews as well. And so I kind of like left that whole point out. Some of you we're kind of excited that you got to think about that on your own. And some of you were asking, how come you focused on that, but you didn't follow up with it? So there, I just followed up with it. <laughs> Picking back up. Now we're on Acts chapter 8. And what has just happened here is Stephen delivered the eloquent message, which was the good news to the Sanhedrin, the judges, the, the high priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And he told them that Jesus was the answer. Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. And he actually pointed at him and said, you're the one that killed this man. And then they proceeded to stone him. To stone him for blasphemy. And as the Pharisees and the Sadducees were required by the law, they were the ones that had to pick up the first stone and throw the first stone than the rest of the public did that were watching. But for them to actually throw the stone, they had to take their outer garments off so they could get their throwing arm. And they laid their outer garments at the feet of Saul, a young upcoming Pharisee. And he was responsible for watching their garments. And that leads us into chapter 8, talking about Saul. So let's read along here. It says, verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul agreed with uh, putting him to death. Talking about Stephen, about him getting stoned to death. Saul agreed with it. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The day that Stephen proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah and all the Jewish leaders said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not happening. For the last five years, three, Jesus walked on the earth and said, "I'm, I'm Him, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I've come to save you. And then uh, two or three years after, the apostles watched the church grow by telling stories of Jesus and doing all sorts of miracles to heal people. They're like, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. 
And so now they've killed their first Christian, their first believer. Stephen became the first martyr. It says, severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Verse 3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Let's talk about Saul today. Saul, who eventually becomes Paul. Saul. So Stephen is stoned. Saul's got the garments of all the Pharisees at his feet. Says that he's in agreement with what they did. Now it's on. Let's just ravage. You know what ravage means, right? It's it's like uh, you've got a predator that finds a prey and just rips it apart. This is what it means when it says Saul is going after the church, is that he's ravaging the church. What does, what does that look like? It says right there that they, he, he went into the homes. We don't know exactly what homes he went into because all the Christians began to scatter. In other words, when they scattered, they left Jerusalem. This is where the Sanhedrin was. This is where the Pharisees were. This is where Paul was. They were going through Jerusalem and picking off all the Christians. It was probably easier to identify a Hellenistic Jew than it was to identify a native Jew. Because that's what Paul was. And even though the temple was still around, they're moving from a phase of Jewish tradition and culture to that of, we don't need to do this anymore. This isn't necessary anymore. So it wasn't like it just got cut off all of a sudden. So it may have been harder to identify the native Jews than it was for like the Greek Jews or those that were coming from surround. Remember, Last couple of chapters, they were coming from all over the place to hear about Jesus. And the apostles were having to take care of these people. They were having to feed all of them. They put all their money together. The apostles divided it up equally, and they every week they would feed not only the native Jews, but those from the surrounding areas. Remember all that that we've talked about. So now Paul's going into these homes, and he's literally taking them out of their homes and putting them in prison. That sounds respectable. Putting them in prison. But that's not all that Paul was doing here. Let's, let's just break down Saul right here and talk about who this man actually is. We'll do a little character study today on Saul. Uh, I, I think Acts gives a pretty sufficient data, the book that we're studying right now, about Saul's life, Paul's life. And then if you literally read his letters that he wrote, he wrote uh, 
First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First Saint Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He wrote all those letters, so we pull all the history from those letters, and we can learn a little bit about Saul and Paul. If you look at Acts twenty-two three, Acts twenty-two three, it says this: "I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia." Tarsus of Cilicia is really on the north side of Israel, almost into Syria. Almost into Syria. So it's as far north as basically that you can get. That's where he is physically born. Alright? Then 2 Corinthians 11.22 says this, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He's very clearly saying, I am a Hebrew Jew. That's who I am. Acts 23.6 Acts 23.6 says, When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, talking about the Sanhedrin, he cried out, in the Sanhedrin. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. So now he's born in Tarsus. He's calling himself a Hebrew, a Jew, and he's saying my dad was a Pharisee. He comes from the lineage of a pretty strong Jewish family. But wait, there's that statement, that question that theologians have a hard time answering. It comes out of Acts chapter 22, verse 25 through 28. It says, As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul, this is after his name has been changed from Saul to Paul, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do for this man is a Roman citizen? The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Now, Paul clearly is claiming himself as a Roman citizen. But he has clearly said, I was born in Tarsus. Typically, if you're born in one place, that's where you're a citizen of. But somehow, some way, he's describing himself as a citizen of Rome. We're not sure how he did that. Whether it's because he lived there at some point in prison, whether what was going on here, but somehow he's, it's like, I was born in Dallas, Texas. But I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But I've lived in Indiana for the last 30 years. What am I? <laughs> A mutt, thank you. <laughs> I'm American. <laughs> I'm all those, right? I'm all those. I claim them all. You know that I claim them all. 
And so I believe that Paul is doing the same thing here. In fact, Paul says that he has to do what? To teach the gospel, he has to become all things to all people. So you came in here today. You came into a pub. But you also came into a family entertainment center. You also came into a bowling alley. What are you going to tell people where you meet in church? <laughs> I love rhetorical questions. This is where Paul is. This is where Saul is. Acts 22.3 says this, but brought up in this city, talking about Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the law of our ancestors. Gamaliel was this well-known Jewish Pharisee who taught many, many young men to become Pharisees. He was very wise. He was very intellectual. He was like, he was like the Harvard of Pharisees. And Saul sitting here saying, I, my teacher was Gamaliel. Like, I've got this. From Tarsus, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a son of a Pharisee, study under Gamaliel. Acts 26.4 says this, All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I've lived, I lived as a Pharisee. Like, you guys, I, I was groomed for this. My dad was a Pharisee. I spent the first eight years of my life memorizing the Torah, being Genesis, 50 chapters, Exodus, Leviticus, no one even reads that because of the 613 laws. Numbers, Deuteronomy. I knew the whole Torah by the time I was eight years old. Paul's saying. And by the time I was 16, I knew the rest of the Old Testament. Had it memorized. I got this. I know all the laws. You want to test me on it? I know it. I grew up in the shadow of the Pharisees. I grew up. You know, I can relate to Paul. I can relate to Paul. I was at First Baptist Church, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the day I was born probably, and grew up there. Luke, I had six beads on my wrist, not four. If you were Southern Baptist, you had a blue one because you had to be baptized. <laughs> And you had a green one because you were expected to grow in your faith. So I, I grew up with all that. My, my first job was buffing floors in the nursery at First Baptist Church, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was a janitor. And then when I went to high school, I was a day camp counselor. I got to drive a school bus at 18 years old. That was back in the 70s. That wouldn't happen nowadays. 
And then I became a youth intern. And then I was a rec intern. And then I was a youth minister recreation guy. Then I was associate pastor, and now I don't know what you call me. Yeah, thank you. But I can relate to Paul. I've like literally grown up just like he did. It makes sense to me. Then watch this. Philippians 3, verse 4, it says, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Like, if you think you're really, like, I just sat there and told you my resume. If you think you're better than me, Paul's saying, I've got more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. I knew the law. I had it memorized. I followed the law. I obeyed the law. I was a good Pharisee. He is showing us his resume. So he could measure himself according to the law. Then Galatians 1, verse 14, it says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Of all the young men that were studying under Gamaliel or any of the other Pharisees, Paul's like saying, I had the head start. I he was well on his way to becoming a great Pharisee from the beginning. He was the most promising. He was the number one prospect for the Pharisees. Galatians 1, 13, back up, it says, For if you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I was zealous. I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. I was so into it. If the Pharisees, Sadducees said that Jesus was not the Messiah and all these people were gathering called the church, I was going to destroy it. I was going to pick it apart because I was passionate about what I grew up knowing and understanding. I was confident in what I knew. Then 2 Timothy 1.3 He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. He wrote this after his conversion, after he believes in Jesus, and he's saying, I'm able to do what I do right now with a clear conscience. You look, you're born with a conscience. Adam and Eve were born with a conscience. We're born with a conscience. Don't necessarily need the law to tell me what to do. May not 
may not have the Spirit at the time, but everybody's born with a conscience. And it says, God gave me a clear conscience because I grew up believing this. This is what I was taught. So why wouldn't I naturally do this with a clear... I could kill Christians with a clear conscience because I believed I was doing the right thing. I get it. I get it. A whole first part of my ministry, I put students and friends and family members under the law. I'd get them in headlocks and say, this is the way you need to behave. This is the way you need to run your life. This is, And then the day that you see it differently, it all changes. It all changes. But I don't regret my journey. I don't regret the path that I've been on. Yeah, I'd love to go back and reteach what I used to teach a different way. Paul's saying, I had a clear conscience of what I was doing. You think about what what ways did Paul persecute the church? He he caused havoc. He made havoc of the church. In fact, in that passage it says, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. That's like that wild animal mangling its prey. This is what Saul was doing. He was tearing the church up. Says the stoning of Stephen, Saul put his stamp of approval on it. Verse 1. And then he shows the length of what he would do to achieve persecuting the church. He He persecuted, it says he took him to prison, but wait, Acts 22.4 says this, I persecuted this way to death. Arresting and putting both men and women in jail. I, he not only put them in jail, but he made sure they died. Acts 22.19 says this, But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He had him beaten. He approved of stoning. Acts 26.9 says this, In fact, I myself was convinced that it is necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this. This is this is Saul referring to his time as Paul. I mean, Paul referring to his time as Saul. I actually did this in Jerusalem. And I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I even punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. So I was terribly enraged at them. I pursued them even to foreign cities. He literally 
chased Christians out of Jerusalem. He would go into their homes and say, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And if they said yes, he would put them in prison, he would beat them until they died. That's a pretty evil dude. That's a pretty evil dude. And he did it with a clear conscience. He was a man with great authority whose devotion to Moses completely controlled his life. The law. The law. It almost destroyed his life. And he literally did it ignorantly. 1 Timothy 1.13 says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. He's talking about Saul. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's literally saying, I was bad. But somehow, by God's grace and mercy, He transformed my life. That's what happened. We'll get there. It's like two more Sundays. We'll get there about His actual conversion experience. We'll get there. It says, He says that in Acts twenty two nineteen. Wait, I just read that one. Sorry. God showed him mercy and saved him. That's where I am. Saul of Tarsus is the last person in Jerusalem you would have chosen to be the great apostle of the Gentiles. Now watch this. First Timothy chapter fifth or chapter one, verse fifteen. He says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate His extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternally, mortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, let me camp at that verse for a second. <laughs> uh, sinners. God, Jesus came to save sinners, he says in First Timothy. And he says, I'm the worst of them all. Like, I'm the worst of them all. Growing up in church, I was taught that Paul said I'm a sinner. Right there, in that verse. He says, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the chief of all sinners. Therefore, we're all sinners. If Paul says we're sinners, then we're sinners. But let's keep it into the context of what we just spoke about here this morning. I just described to you a pretty evil man. I mean, what's worse than pulling people out of the church and killing Christians? I mean, Paul 
what he's done here when he makes this statement. I'm the chief of all sinners. I know that he says in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you're born, you're born with a sinful nature. It's natural for you to sin. Everybody sins. Therefore, everybody's on a chart of sinners. Everybody in this room is on a chart of sinners based upon what you've done, sin in your life. Paul's sitting here and saying, I'm worse than all of you. I've killed Christians. I, I imprisoned people. I beat them. I, I, I was ravaging them. But something happened to Paul. He had a conversion experience. He became a believer after all that. Yes, he sinned. Yes, he may have sinned the worst of everybody from Adam all the way to the end, but that's the way that he's, what he's referring to when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Listen to this. After the cross, after the cross, the end of all four Gospels, the beginning of Acts, that is the only verse. Hear me. That is the only verse after the Gospels that calls the church sinners. It refers to them as sinners. And what it's referring to is Paul's life before the conversion. He's absolute. You were all sinners. We were all sinners. Paul was a sinner. Then he had a conversion experience. And guess what? I'll take that one verse where he refers to him being the chief sinner and compare it to all the other verses that he uses. Because you know what? He sits there and tells me throughout the rest of the New Testament from the cross on. Look at this. It's all it's posted on leavener.com. Romans 5 1 says, I've been justified, completely forgiven, made righteous, and am at peace with God. That's in opposition of I'm the chief of all sinners. Can't be both. Romans 8 1 says, I'm forever free from condemnation. Romans 8, 14, 15 says, I'm a son of God. God's literally my papa. Romans 15, 7 says, Christ has accepted me. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, I'm a temple. I, I am the home for God. God lives inside of me. His spirit dwells in me. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, I am joined to the Lord and am one spirit with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, I am a new creation. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This life I am now living is Christ's life. Ephesians 1.1, I am a saint. Can't be a saint and a chief of all sinners at the same time. Ephesians 1.5, I've been adopted as God's child. Ephesians 2.19, I'm a fellow citizen with the saints and a member of God's household. Philippians 3.20, I'm a citizen of heaven. Colossians 1.13, I've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Those are all Paul's words. 
The same guy that says, I'm the chief of all sinners, referring to his old life. But now he's sitting there saying, you have to know who you are. You walk out of here thinking that I'm a sinner, you're probably going to act like a sinner. You walk out of here knowing that you're a child of God, that you're righteous, that you're holy, that you're blameless, there's no condemnation, you're going to walk out of here believing it. And you'll live your life differently. That's exactly what Paul did when he had his conversion experience. Hmm. Paul. Saul. Poor dude. Makes me just want to move along so I can get to the good stuff. Close out talking about Philip here. Verse 4, it says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the Word. So now people are leaving Jerusalem because Saul is just ravaging the church. It says everybody left but the apostles. I don't believe everybody left. I believe a lot of people left. They scattered. No question about it. They scattered. The apostles stayed there. Not sure why the apostles stayed there. Maybe because they came from Jewish faith. Maybe because they hadn't been instructed to leave yet. But they stayed there and they took care of the church almost like an underground church because it was being ravaged. But many left and they went on their way preaching the Word. That's what we would call evangelism, telling the good news of Jesus Christ. And then it says, verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Ooh, Samaria is actually north of Jerusalem, but remember, you're always up when you're in Jerusalem. So anytime you leave Jerusalem, you go down. It's just the way it's referred to. You go up to Jerusalem, down everywhere else. So they went down to Samaria, even though it's north. In Samaria, you had to know this was an area where, remember how we've talked about the Jews being dispersed all over? Well, those Jews that didn't marry other Jews, they married Gentiles. They're half-Jews. Those are what we call Samaritans. And nobody wanted to be around the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They were looked down upon. So where does Philip go? He goes to Samaria. And he proclaimed, he literally announced the Messiah to them. Here's why the apostles didn't go. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 says, Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Their instruction at that point back then was you're here to teach that I'm the Messiah to the Jews at this point. It wasn't ready to go out. But Philip, he wasn't one of the disciples. Remember who Philip was. Says verse 6, the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. Remember who Philip was. 
Philip was one of those just a couple of weeks ago that we learned about. He was one of the seven chosen men that was to fulfill the administration duties of the church in Jerusalem. He was chosen as a deacon. Acts 6, verse 3, it says, Brothers and sisters, select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. So now Philip goes to Samaria, down to Samaria, and he begins to teach that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only does he teach and proclaim, but he begins to doing miracles like the apostles did. Not only is he telling the good news, but he's proving that God is God. He's proving it because God is using him to heal people and do some crazy miracles. He's doing the same miracles that the apostles were doing in Jerusalem. In the last two verses. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Hmm. So now, the gospel had multiplied to a wider area than just Jerusalem. It had actually gone into Samaria. The Christians, the church, the believers in Jesus got scattered out of Jerusalem. Didn't lose their faith. Didn't lose the message of the good news. It just caused it to be spread out in a larger region. So, that leaves us with the question. Did God cause the persecution of the church? Let me ask that again. Did God cause the persecution of the church? Thank you. Absolutely not. This is one of the issues with our society. When something bad happens, God gets blamed for it. Why did God do that? God didn't cause the church to be persecuted. I have a loving and just God. And there is an evil in this world that causes us to be a part of a fallen world. And He does evil things. And He was doing evil things through the Pharisees. He was doing evil things through Paul, Saul. He was doing evil things through Saul, the chief of all sinners. Yet watch this. A conversion happened. Saul becomes Paul. He becomes a believer in Jesus. In the midst of the whole persecution thing, 
the word, the good news gets spread out. He didn't cause the persecution, but he absolutely caused the spreading of the word. My God is responsible for the good things. He's not responsible for the evil things. There's a big difference. Our society wants to blame God for everything. You've got to see the difference. There's a difference between Saul and Paul. Father, I pray that uh, your word just continues to unfold and unpack not only with me, but with everyone here, that you would, in somehow, some way, your spirit, which lives inside of us, allow us to read this, see this thing, and let it become real to us. And know that you do love us. And that you can absolutely, if you can transform Paul's life, you can transform our lives. Absolutely. You can, tra- you can transform not just our lives, but you can transform our situations that we're in. You have the ability to do that because you're a good and loving God. So Lord, I trust you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.